Well, after a couple weeks in 2 Kings, we're going to go back to Psalms today, and we're going to be in Psalm 135 and 136. Now, both of these Psalms are fairly lengthy in their in how many verses they have, but they also are, you know, have kind of one precise message to them, each one of them. And beginning with Psalm 135, from here to the, to the remainder of the Psalms, we are entering into a group of Psalms that deals a lot with the praise and the worship of God. The last 15 Psalms that we did that went to 134, 120 to 134, were the Psalms of Ascent that people would quote as they were going to Jerusalem. They are going up to Jerusalem. Well, we're out of the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent praised God. And a lot of the Psalms before that praised God. But these Psalms from here on out just place a little more emphasis on the praising of God. And Psalm 135, it's pretty simple to see. It begins and ends with the same statement. Praise the Lord. More than one commentator has pointed out that every verse in Psalm 135 can be seen elsewhere in Scripture. There's nothing new here. Derek Kidner wrote, Every verse of this psalm either echoes or quotes or is quoted by some other part of Scripture. So you might read through this and think, Hmm, that's familiar. Yeah, it could be. Matthew Henry points out that this psalm gives us the matter for praise. That is, God is to be praised. He's to be praised in verse 4 as the God of Jacob. We have some spots up here. Verse 4, God is to be praised as the God of Jacob. In verse 5, he's to be praised as the God of gods. Verse 6 and 7, he's to be praised as the God of the whole world. Verses 8 through 11, he's to be praised, this is something we don't think about a lot, as, the, as a terrible God to the enemies of Israel. Verse 12 to 14, he's to be praised as a gracious God to Israel, both for what he has done and for what he will do. Verses 15 to 18, he's to be praised as the only living God, all other gods being vanity or a lie. And verse 19 to 21, he's to be praised as a it's an exaltation for all people to praise God. So let's begin with the first couple verses. A call to praise the Lord. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord in the courts of the house of our God. You know, this is where worship begins. It begins by praising the Lord. Now, you also get the sense here that this is an emotional statement. It's emotionally stated. And praising God is not drudgery. Some of the liturgical things that man has turned things into are kind of drudgery. 
Praising God is not drudgery. It is to be pursued with passion. And Boyce states that to worship is to, quote, attribute worth, to rightly ascribe to him supreme worth, for he alone is supremely worthy. Another thing that he notes in his commentary is that the worship of and to God changes the life of the worshiper. And he or she comes to grips. As we come to grips with the supreme God of the universe, it changes us. One person wrote on worship, he said, quote, To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God to feel the mind with the truth of God, to purge or to free of guilt the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God and to, vote the, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. And Spurgeon, he always has something good to say on these types of subjects. He said, Do not only magnify the Lord because he is God, but study his character and his doings and thus render intellect in appreciative praise. So it's not just blind, oh, we're going to praise somebody, but why? Find out about God. Study his character. Study his doings. And then as we worship, our minds are involved. Sadly, we could cite example after example, and it didn't have to, you don't have to look too far, of churches where worship services leave worshiping God. I mean, they don't even, they're not even close. They worship God inappropriately. And instead of focusing on the praising of God, they're focused on entertainment or relevance or hype, or comfort, or enjoyment, or other such things. And these are promoted, and praising God is become secondary, or is missed altogether. I uh, listened to a sermon, a uh, sermonette would be a better word from it, from, to a, from a local church this, uh, this week. The sermon was given on last Sunday, the 12th of February. Super Bowl Sunday. It was 16 minutes long. And I haven't ever gone to this church's website before. So, you know, this is one that we haven't brought up. This is a local pastor, and his message was titled, Praise the Lord. I thought, well, that kind of fits into what it says here. So I listened. He stated that, quote, the deeply faithful trend of Scripture instead claimed by the psalmist and rehearsed again by Paul with thanks to Isaiah, is that we choose gratitude and praise in recognition that the world has always had its ominous dark storms, but we have never had to walk through them alone. And that's why he prays God. And he goes on and he says that through this we can still praise God. In the whole message, he didn't refer to one biblical passage. He referred to a couple examples of Bible stories and everything that he was praising God for 
He told them to praise God for really was because God didn't have us go through this and God didn't have us go through this. It was all man-centered. I praise God because he's been nice to me. No, we praise God because of who he is. Guy missed the point totally. He missed the point totally. But every the point I'm trying to make is this, this guy's not alone. God is to be praised because of who he is. He created the universe by the power of his word. He spoke it into existence. Okay, get your arms around that. Well, you can't, but it's fun to think about. The point I'm trying to make is that everywhere we turn, churches are turning the focus away from God. They might call it praising God. They're turning the focus away from his word and they find countless methods to find, to feed the desires of the flesh. We praise God because what God has done for us. No, we praise God because of who he is. And that's how this starts out. Praise, give him praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. This is a call for all people to praise God for the right reasons. Now, in verse 3, the actual worship, we explained, we're explained why God is to be praised. First, it says, Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Can we praise God too often? I don't think so. So after the initial statement to, to praise God, we see several reasons of why we're to praise God. He is worthy of our praise simply because of who he is. But on top of that, there is more. He is good. God is good. Is there anywhere else, anyone else, that we can equate to total goodness? God is called good in other places in Scripture, including Psalm 52, verse 9, Psalm 109, 21, Mark 10, 18, Luke 18, 19, 1 Timothy 4, 4. You have all of those listed to go look them up. We could spend time to go look them up, and we could look up other verses where it says God is good. Now, as opposed to that, mankind is described as no one who is good. Or man is described as evil in passages like Genesis 6, 5, Genesis 8, 21, Psalm 14, 1, Psalm 53, 1, Jeremiah 17, 9, and Mark 7, 21. So we have this, this total, total difference between man and God. God is good. Man is not. Man is evil. Everything about God is good including I mean we think about God is good and there's a there's a, a little ditty song God is good all the time for the song of praise in the heart of mine you know and well, why is God good everything about God is good including God's wisdom is good God's knowledge is good this one might catch a few people uh, on, not well they might not like it but God's judgments are good. 
His power is good. His works is good. His love is good. His holiness is good. His plan of salvation. We could go on and on. Every aspect of God is good. David spoke to this in Psalm 34, 8, where he said, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Everything about God is good. And the thing that I had to think about more as I was typing this up is that God's judgments are good. We have a we have a society today that thinks, oh, God is love, and that trumps all judgments. No, God will still judge. And those are good. Those are good for a lot of reasons. And we could go into a lot of discussion uh, on Saturday morning. We could talk about that for a couple hours, couldn't we, Bruce? Please, yes. Or Fred. And um, still not get to the bottom. The next thing we see of why we are to praise God is God chose Israel. In verse 4 it says, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and Israel as his possession. Now we are constantly told in Scripture that God did not choose Israel because they were a mighty nation or that they were a people that stood out above all nations. It was just the opposite of a beauty pageant. He didn't choose him. Oh, well, those guys are going to be great. I'm going to pick Israel. Uh-uh. Just the opposite. Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8 says this. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Well, that first of all, you think, well, that's pretty good. It says, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people, the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of, peop- of all peoples. You're small. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord brought, has brought you out of that mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The purpose of God choosing Jacob or Israel It's because he did. Remember, Jacob, he was the wimpy brother to Esau, right? And normally the birthright would have gone to Esau. But God said, no, I choose Jacob. Why? Because he, no, he wouldn't have won an MMA contest. Esau would would have kicked him. So the reason he chose Israel as a small nation not powerful, was so the glory and praise would go to God, not go to Israel. And as that praise goes to God, we can see that's what this psalm is all about. Praise the Lord. The next thing we see is that God has sovereign power. Why we should praise the Lord. Verse 5, For I know that the Lord is great, and our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. It is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth wind from his storehouses. These verses speak to God's power in and over creation. 
No, Mother Nature has not taken over the physical world. We hear that all the time. Everything is under God's sovereign power. Just recently, on February 7th, you know what happened? February 7th at 4 a.m. in the morning? A 7.8 magnitude earthquake in Turkey, and at last count has killed 41,000 people and counting, going up. Um, There's been more than 100 aftershocks, and one of them, if I remember right, was 7.4. Now, I don't know how that fits into God's plan, but it wasn't Mother Nature that did it. It was God. Look at all the droughts we have in the southwestern United States right now. Everybody's saying, oh, we don't have any water. Mother Nature did the trick. Oh, climate change. No, God is in control of everything. God is sovereign. So we can't say climate change caused it. We can't say that Mother Nature caused it. Whether it's gentle rain that rains on the earth to bring all the good stuff that a gentle general rain brings or a different event that causes massive massive destruction God is sovereign over all he has sovereign power and that's what we see here in verses 5 to 7 it is he who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from its storehouses God this is God's world God's universe and he is in control we see in Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And from the introduction of that verse, the Lord is great. At verse 5, the Lord is great and the Lord is above all gods. And we cannot forget the message of verse 6. And I don't know really how far to go with this except to just read it. And yes, this is what it says. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. The fact that the Lord does what he pleases clearly shows that he is not dependent upon anyone or anything. No action of man nor group of men can cause God to change what he's going to do. He does what he pleases. The next thing we see of what is what God has done in history. Verse 8. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. You know, I've never heard of anybody Naming their kid Og. <laughs> Just saying. It's out there. I wouldn't recommend it, but it's a, it's a Bible name. Not a good one, but sorry about that. Probably a street name. What's that? It's probably a street name. Probably a street name. It could be. And he, in verse 12, And he gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. For your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. 
for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. This section of verses contains examples of God's involvement in the nation of Israel. They're not all of the examples, they're just a couple, obviously. These examples are proofs of God's greatness and goodness to the nation. The striking down of the firstborn of Egypt, the destruction of many nations. This is the judgments of God. God strikes down nations. God struck down the firstborn of Egypt. They were acts of God, and they were just as good as anything God ever did. The culture in the world today opposes verses like this. It's much more palatable to think of God as a God of love. And most everyone's heard that. For God so loved the world. And it's true. But here we see that God struck down the firstborn of man and beast, and then he struck down many nations. And we could go through example after example in Scripture. And then he gave the promised land to Israel. Now, there's a whole lot of people today that want to give the land to the Palestinians, who are basically the descendants of the Arabs who were displaced by a war between five Arab nations and the state of Israel in 1947. That's when they started. I'll say this, and then we'll have to move on. God gave the land initially to Abraham, and then, as stated here and elsewhere in Scripture, this land was given to the nation of Israel when they entered it following the 40 years of wandering. Any argument that the land should be given to anyone else except Israel is arguing against God. No one else. And anybody that tries to have a treaty to do something like that, you know God's not in it. Because it is the land that he gave to the nation of Israel. Then in verse 13 and 14, we see that God's renown will last forever. It says, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, through all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion upon his servants. So as verses 8 reflected on what has God has done in the past, when we brought to this these verses, we see his greatness will last forever into the future. Everything about God is eternal. Deuteronomy 33, 26 and 27 states this, There is none like God, O Jeshurun. Now that's a poetic name for Israel. So don't think he's talking about somebody else. Who rides through the heavens to your help, through skies in his majesty. The eternal God is your dwelling place, and underneath are the everlasting arms. God is eternal. And this also brings another big word into play, is God is immutable. God is immutable. And this is God's perfectly, his perfect unchangeability in his essence, his character, his purposes, and his promises. God does not change. Matthew Henry points out in these two verses in Psalm 135, he says, God's manifestations of himself and to his people have everlasting fruits and consequences. 
what God does will be forever. That's just fun to think about. It will be forever. Then going on in the psalm. God is contrasted with the false gods or the idols. Starting in verse 15. The, excuse me. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have no mouths. Oh, they, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. These little three verses accurately sum up all gods except for the one true God. They are made by artisans, sometimes out of costly materials. Their mouths, their ears, their eyes, their feet, or any other parts are worthless or valueless. So, uh, Isaiah 44, 9 to 20, that whole passage talks to the folly of idolatry and it begins in verse 9 it says all who fashion idols are nothing and the things they delight in do not profit and then he goes all you know to go all the way to verse 20 a deluded heart has led him astray he cannot deliver himself or say is there not a lie in my right hand following idols the idols of nations and the work that they had back then doesn't it, they're worthless. Now, the idols of nations and the work of men's hands today looks a little different than it did back when the Psalms was around, when it was written. But that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because you don't have a, a thing that you bow down to or worship doesn't mean it doesn't exist. There's a, a book, I believe, it's called Idolatry is Alive Today. And a quote from that says this. Is it that a 12-inch tall piece of wood or bronze can do something bad to us? Or is it that we do something awful to make ourselves or to ourselves when we place adoration and attention that should go to God and other things? When it comes to idolatry, the danger is not in an item, it is in us. Because the problem was the heart of man. Bruce's favorite website, Got Questions, states this. All the various forms of modern idolatry have one thing at their core, self. We no longer bow down to idols and images. Some people do, but generally not. Instead, we worship at the altar of the God of self. Though this brand of modern idolatry takes various forms. And we can be thinking about that, how people worship at self. A person named Gene Whitehead added, Idolatry is anything that either disproportionately consumes your thoughts, actions, or resources that take your focus off God. The more you look at some of these new definitions, you kind of squirm a little bit. Does that, does that pry itself into my life somewhere? It can. We have to be careful that it does not. Because the idol of verse 15 of Psalm 135, the idols of nations are silver and gold. Well, I would say that's a pretty good idol of our nation. Now, we just haven't formed it into an image. 
you know, that we have to sit on our car or in our kitchen or someplace. But they are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Verse 18 needs to be looked at real closely here as well. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Concerning verse 18, Spurgeon wrote this. Idolaters are spiritually dead. They are the mere images of men. Their best being is gone. They are not what they seem. Their mouths do not really pray. Their eyes do not see the truth. Their ears hear not the voice of the Lord. And their life of God is not in them. Those who believe in their own inventions in religion. I like how he said that. Those who believe in their own inventions in religion betray great folly and an utter absence of the quickening spirit. Gracious men can see the absurdity of forsaking the true God and setting up rivals in its place. But those who perpetrate this crime do not think so. On the contrary, they pride themselves upon their great wisdom and boast of their advanced thought and modern culture. May we be saved from such mimicry and divine work, lest we also become like our idols. Pretty, pretty well stated. And then in verse 19 to 21, to close out this psalm, is a call to praise God. It's back kind of to the beginning of the psalm. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. That's us. Blessed be the Lord from Zion who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Everyone is charged to join in this praise. MacArthur, in addressing the worship of God, stated that the nature of true worship is seeing worship not as a spectator sport, but a participative activity. The church's priority is worshiping God. And we need to make sure we don't waver from that, that we praise the Lord and we worship our God. It's easy to get off track. Psalm 135 can keep us from doing that. Now flip your pages over. And if it says Psalm 135, change it to a 6. Psalm 136. Another long psalm, 26 verses. James Boyce makes the point in his commentary that the psalms overall were the chief worship vehicle in both the Old and New Testament church, uh, Old, New, Old Testament times and in the, the New Testament uh, times, the New Testament church for most of its history. And the popular songs, the popular hymns, the choruses that we have today are a fairly recent development, last couple hundred years. And yes, many of today's popular Christian songs can come under a lot of deserved criticism. We can go out there and we can look at 
a whole bunch of them that are just a mess. They're a theological train wreck. But people sing them. But just a little uh, history here. Way back when congregational singing began to appear or reappear in Christian worship, there were songs back there that were pretty bad too. I mean, really bad. And they deserve criticism as well as the songs today that are not theologically good. I don't know if you've ever heard, most of you have probably heard of this songwriter, one of my favorites, if not the favorite songwriter that I had, that of, of mine, is Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was to become a very much loved hymn writer, and he gave us songs like When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, uh, one that everybody knows, even if they're not Christians, Joy to the World. Uh, I sing the mighty power of God, O God, our help in ages past, at the cross. These will be good ones to sing a lot. Joy of the World has nothing to do with Christmas, by the way. It's not a Christmas song. Okay, just read the words, you'll figure it out. But there were times, or at, at the time that Isaac was an 18-year-old lad, he had complained to his father over and over and over about the ridiculous, droning, monotonous singing that he observed in church. And this was an English-speaking church in England. And at that time, the congregational singing was, what I looked up here, they called it a ponderous affair. Here's, here's how they sang. Now, Christian, if you want to try this, go ahead. A deacon or clerk would first read the verse that was going to be sung, followed by the congregation, usually without the benefit of any musical instruments, because they didn't have them. It was called lining out. So thus the singing of a psalm could become extremely tedious because you'd sing, you know, six words or three measures or something. They'd sing it to you and then you'd sing it and then they'd sing it and then you'd sing it. Same thing. Every line of the stanza repeated twice. It was so bad to Isaac, he termed it deplorable. And he used to complain to his father like crazy. He's an 18-year-old guy now, Right? Dad, this is terrible. Well, his dad was a leading deacon in the church. And he came back and he says, Well then, young man, why don't you see if you can do something better? By the next Sunday, Watts had written his first hymn. How deplorable were they? Well, the words to one popular song was this. Ye monsters of the bubbling deep. Then you say it. Your master's praises spout. And then you say it. Up from the sands ye codlings peep. And then you say it. And wag your tails about. And then you say it. Terrible? Terrible? That's a nice word. Yeah, I mean, this was, this was yucky stuff. I have no idea what it meant okay but one thing we can always improve on one thing that we can always improve on is our praise to the Lord in worship 
And Psalm 136 is a good example for us to follow in that regard. There's a reason I told you that story. Now we're back on track. This psalm is called the Great Psalm of Praise. Now we don't know who the human author is. But it was sung. At least a part of it during the dedication of the temple built by Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7.3, where we read this in verse 3 of 2 Chronicles 7. When all the people of Israel saw the first fire come down and the glory from the Lord on the temple, now that had to have been an incredible sight. The dedication of the temple, the people saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple. They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever I would have liked to have been there I hope they have a YouTube of it in heaven when we go there now one very noteworthy aspect of Psalm 136 is that each of the 26 verses ends with the identical statement for his steadfast love endures forever. Now Matthew Henry points out that this is not mere vain repetition. The repeating of it adds to the beauty of the song and the focus of the song. His steadfast love endures forever. On the phrase Spurgeon wrote, we shall have this repeated in every verse of this song, but not once too often. It is the sweetest stanza that a man can sing. What joy that there is mercy. Mercy with Jehovah. Enduring mercy. Mercy enduring forever. We are ever needing it. Trying it. Praying for it. Receiving it. Therefore, let us forever sing of it. Can we say his steadfast love endures forever too many times? When we say it from our heart, no. And through the psalm, there is a working through many of the things that God has done. And then each statement is followed by, His steadfast love endures forever. That would be a good thing to end a lot of statements with. His steadfast love endures forever. In verses 1 to 3, we have... A declaration of who God is. In verses 4 to 9, we begin with creation. In verses 10 to 17, then to dealings of taking Israel out of Egypt and helping them in the wilderness. In verses 18 to 23, establishing the promised land. And then a general provision of God for all in verse 24 and 25. And that includes both redeemed people unredeemed people first and then the redeemed second so it starts off in verses 1 to 3 give thanks to the Lord for he is good for you can say it for his steadfast love endures forever give thanks to the God of gods give thanks to the Lord of lords Here God is described as good. The God of gods and the Lord of lords. 
For these three things we should give him thanks. Giving thanks is as important is an important part of our worship as is praising God. Both praising without offering thanks or offering thanks without praising leave out a critical element in the worship of God. You don't want to have one without the other. Now, Derek Kidner points out that giving thanks perhaps doesn't give us the full intended meaning of the words. The original intent is to confess or to acknowledge or to thankfully confess. Well, what is he speaking to? The context helps us here. It's a confession of our faith, of our trust. Now, we could look up plenty of verses that show that God is good. We talked about that just a little bit ago. And the God of gods and the Lord of lords. God is good beyond all others. Indeed, he alone is good in the highest sense. He is the source of good. He is the good of all good. This is a Spurgeon quote. The sustainer of good, the perfecter of good, and the rewarder of good. For this he deserves the constant gratitude of his people. No one else in Scripture is called the God of gods. God is called this in Deuteronomy 10, 17, and in Daniel 2, 47, and in Daniel eleven thirty six. And if you've been listening to the Wednesday night Daniel thing, um, when Scott went over that, it, 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 was, it, was, it was good... A good thing to go back and, and learn and, and listen to that. No one else is the Lord of Lords. Deuteronomy ten seventeen again. First Timothy six fifteen, Revelation seventeen fourteen, and Revelation nineteen sixteen. Now the interesting thing to me, or one interesting thing, about this group of verses on the Lord of Lords is that both God is called the Lord of Lords and so is the Lamb or Jesus Christ called the Lord of Lords. So Jesus Christ is God. That's what it, you don't, If he wasn't God, you couldn't call him that. They're both called, they're given that same title. And then in verses 4 to 9, we have God's greatness in creation. It says, To him who alone does great wonders... Boy, you guys, you guys don't learn very fast. <laughs> to him by understanding made the heavens for his us love. To him who spread out the earth above the waters. Make it so loud you bug that class across the hall. <laughs> to him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. You know, the more we discover about God's creation, the more incredible God becomes to us. It is interesting to me that back in Darwin's day, early 1800s, 1830s, 40s, somewhere in there, somewhere. 
those who rejected the statements in Scripture about who created the world and the universe actually thought and taught that the more we would discover about creation, the more it would prove their point. That it was just a matter of time. We're just going to get that next discovery, and boy, it's going to it's going to just knock God right off the rocker. But the more we discover about God's creation, guess what? The more we learn about the complexity of the universe, the complexity of our planet, the complexity of life, the complexity of cells, the interdependency of living tissues and organisms. And that optimism that these people had about showing that God is not necessarily necessary was grossly misjudged about all they have to hang their hat on now is they throw one little element into their equation and they think, think that that's going to fix everything. And that's the word time. Give us enough time and it'll happen. Well, actually... It sounds like the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? It does. It sounds like the Tower of Babel. But, and your husband would appreciate this because she's a mathematician... But actually, the more you look at time, the more it works against you. But they seem to think that's the end all. But if you, if you, I, I, I remember a quote from um, Expelled, the movie, and they were talking to a, an atheist who doesn't believe in evolution, and they asked him how much we learned about uh, life and molecules and DNA and all that stuff compared to Darwin's day. And he said, oh, it's about the difference between the simple combustion engines and the Saturn V rocket. And they asked that question about 15 years ago. And I would say, if you had him here today, it says, how much have you learned in the last 15 years? It's quantum leaps above that. Because every time they turn around, they're finding something more complex. They don't have a clue how it works. You want to listen to a guy? Oh, I can't remember his name right now. I'll, I'll, I'll remember it. There's there's a person on on YouTube that just basically basically comes out and just states that very boldly and bluntly. James Tour, you know, go out and look at James Tour on 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 YouTube and some of the statements that he makes. He's a he's a really smart professor at Rice University who has biochemical engineering and all kinds of other stuff. And it it is incredibly complex and they can't get there so they just add time spell his last name t-o-u-r t-o-u-r okay thanks yeah just like it sounds just like it sounds but what we see here verse four it is him alone who does great wonders him alone no one else helped god in creation he didn't have assistant creators out there no it was him who by understanding made the heavens. How do you do that? Who spread out the earth above the waters. Who made the great lights. Do you realize how big some of those lights are? They're pretty massive. The sun to rule over the day and the moon to rule over the stars and night. 
God made these things. The Big Bang didn't make anything. God made everything. Looking at God's creation should stir in us a similar response as it did the psalmist. Taking, the line, taking us to the line, for his steadfast love endures forever, is an appropriate and fitting response. We should go beyond looking at creation as a proof of God, but it also view it as a praise to God for what he has done and what an incredible and beautiful world he has created for us to live in. The world God has created for man to dwell in provides all that we need to sustain us and to enjoy life. No, Mother Nature is not exceedingly beautiful. God's creation is exceedingly beautiful and created for man. And if you think any differently, look at each and every other planet that we can see, that we have ever seen, and look at the habitable conditions that exist on any other planet in the universe. I wouldn't want to go there. You definitely wouldn't be able to live there or breathe they're unhospitable. And look how hospitable the earth is. Now I know the sci-fi movies make it look like there's all these things out there and you go and there's beautiful things. That fiction. Okay? And all of those were filmed on earth, by the way. Just a little clue. Then in verse 10 to 24... we see God's greatness with Israel. Verse 10. To him that struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to Israel, his servant. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state. And rescued us from our foes. In these verses, the section, the verses in this section, thank God for his care for Israel. Beginning in verse 10 with Passover, where Pharaoh finally let go of his grip on the nation and let them depart. 
which is a very familiar storyline, beginning in Exodus 11, all the way to Numbers 21, where we have the defeat of Sihon and Og, that probably most of us don't haven't read that in the last couple weeks. Now, you may recall from what we just studied in Psalm 135, the king of the Amorites and Og, the king of Bashan, were referred to in Psalm 135.11. Now, Sihon, as Israel was coming out of the promised land, they wanted to go through the, you know, the land of the Amorites, and they asked nicely, and the Amorites said, no. So they, God defeated them. Not a good, smart move on their part. But it reflects the work of God in history. The fact that God sovereignly worked throughout history in his plan of redemption back then shows us that he's still doing it today. And God's work in the past, as we read through these things, well, what does Sihon and Og have to do with us? Or crossing of the Red Sea? Or uh, leading his people through the wilderness? Or striking down the great kings? What does that have to do with us? God's work in the past should give us cause for hope and cause for confidence that the same thing will continue throughout all human existence and all of God's promises for the future, the coming kingdom. That's going to happen, just like this happened. So we can say his steadfast love endures forever for what he's done in the past, and we could add a whole bunch more to this list, And but it's also for what will happen. Now, and God's doing all of these things that we just read about was a huge demonstration of his mercy, that his steadfast love endures forever. And I don't think, as I was reading through these, that I am capable of understanding just how great those provisions were for 40 years in the one in, in wandering in that wilderness. Have you ever seen pictures of where they were wandering? Right? There's not a whole lot there. There's nobody building vacation rental homes there. Right? No one would go there. But God protected them for 40 years with food and water and shoes. And he, that's when he created them. That's when he developed them as a nation. It was a huge demonstration of God's mercy that his steadfast love endures forever. Spurgeon wrote on this, he said, their conduct in the wilderness tested his mercy most severely. I th- that's just a nice way of saying, they weren't bad, good, good behaving people. Tested his mercy most severely, but it bore the strain. Many a time he forgave them. And though he smote them for their transgressions, yet he waited to be gracious and speedily turned to them in their com- in compassion. Does that remind you of a verse like in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? All right? If we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have, in the next verse, if we say we have not sinned, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Yeah, we're kind of a lot like Israel. We test God's mercy 
most severely at times. But as Spurgeon wrote, it bore the strain and God's mercy will bear the strain. And then in verse 25 and 26, we conclude we, com- we, we conclude uh, God's provisions for all, even though some provisions for those who reject him. And there's a final call to give thanks to him. Verse 25. He who gives food to all flesh Give thanks to the God of heaven. Now the conclusion of this psalm is not just for the people of Israel. He was just talking about all his provisions for the people of Israel. But here he says, He who gives food to all flesh. In Matthew 5.25, Jesus stated, He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And then to think of all the goodness and everything that God bestows on those who have become believers. Who have been adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. We read in Ephesians 1, 4-14. These verses state a lot of things. And we won't read through all the verses. But a couple things. They state that uh, what has happened to believers. One, we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Let's go home and think about that for about an hour. And when you're through with that, go to the next one. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Okay, and another hour, try the next one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Then the next one. In him we have obtained an inheritance. Did we deserve an inheritance? No. And then when we believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. How do we respond to that? How should we respond? I would suggest the following is a good start. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Yeah, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. See, that little line does add as you say it all the time. It's not vain repetition, as Matthew Henry said it was not. Or James Boyce, one of the two. Let's bow for prayer.